This morning, if you're going to be following along with the Bible study from our C316.tv application, um, you might, right from the beginning, think that it's the wrong Bible study because I'm going to change the whole intro. We'll get to this intro, but just to kind of let you know, we're going to go a bit of a different direction to just start this morning, mainly because of the events of this week. As as many of you um, can sympathize, uh, it has been a very trying week in America. From uh, the events that started the week and the, the, the uncertainty surrounding some of these, these police shootings to what happened in Dallas and across America. You know, if you follow anyone on Twitter, if you're active with social media, shoot, even if you're not, There's a lot of people out there, regardless of political party, color of skin, it doesn't really matter. Everyone is pointing out glaring problems. Have you noticed that? The problems within America, the problem with Americans. I don't know if you've noticed though, that while everyone, even our president, is quick to point out accurate problems, we haven't been given very many solutions, have we? Regardless of where you land, regardless of how you see the problem, I have not heard very many people stand up to provide a remedy, a solution. Very quick to point out what's wrong, but where do we go next? You see, the truth of the matter is that through legislation, through law, through government, at best, policy, can only deal with a man's hands. Yes, it can take away a gun, but it doesn't take away the intent to kill someone. Yes, it can limit a person's ability to to, to act out in a racist way, but it doesn't change the racist heart. You see, the problem that we face is that laws and legislation and government will fail. Because while it affects the hands, it doesn't get to the root cause, the problem. And the problem is what? It's the heart. And no one is willing to talk about the heart. I read one person that said, while we might have a skin issue, more pressing, we have a sin issue. And it manifests in all different types of ways. And this morning, I want to be clear through much prayer and what to say. At 316, we try to avoid politics. I love America and the freedom that we have here. But truth, I have a king whose authority supersedes the president's. Not only that, I'll vote, I'll pay my taxes, I'll do my patriotic duty, but where my loyalties lie is in a future kingdom. And that's the truth. I love America. But America is not the end for me. I'm looking for something else, looking for something greater. And the truth this morning is that if you really want to know the remedy to everything we see facing America, if you really want to know what the solution is to the problem of racism, the problem of violence, the problem of hate, the remedy, it's very simple. It's revival. It's the heart of man 
being filled with the Spirit of God. It's a transformation that happens here that then works its way out. You could go back to every major social movement in the world. Great example being slavery. What ended slavery? It was the Great Awakening in England. It was a spiritual revival that took place, Wilberforce. It was people coming under the weight of the truth of God's word, seeing men as equal, recognizing that the practices didn't jive, not with their land, but with their kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, where we are all equal in the eyes of God. But the awakening happened through a moving of the Holy Spirit. We'll see this when we get back to the book of Genesis that man seeked to come together after the flood. God said to go out. Man came together. So God scattered man across the nations. God created separations until, until Pentecost. We're 120 of Jesus' followers, as we'll see this morning, in obedience to the Lord. We're in an upper room. And the Holy Spirit was poured out and something happened in that moment that, you know what? Effectively changed the world forever. And that day, slave and master could worship together. Oppressor and, and those being oppressed could worship together. It changed the world. Now, we talk about revival. We can talk about revival on a macro scale. As it, as it pertains to the nation, as it pertains to the church, as it pertains to the world. But we often overlook the reality that revival takes place, not in a macro sense. It takes place in a micro sense. It takes place, it begins when individual people are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then collectively, a work begins. See, one of the problems is that Christians fall the, into this, this lax mentality that I have all I need. When in reality, you don't. You need to be filled with the Spirit. And then, friend, refilled with the Spirit, and then filled again with the Spirit, over and over and over again, we need to be filled with the Spirit of God. And it's then that revival takes place. I'll give you an example. One of my favorite Bible teachers is D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody is a famous preacher. His church was in Chicago. D.L. Moody got saved at a very early age. He began his ministry in the year 1855. Evangelist, God did a work, pastor, author. But what's interesting is that while D.L. Moody had been in ministry for some 15 to 16 years, he records that something happened in his life in the year 1871 that changed him forever. Keep in mind the context. He got saved at a young age. He went to seminary. He was a pastor. He was an evangelist. He was an author, pastored a big church, a movement across the world. And yet, even after 16 years doing that, something happened that changed him. Moody tells how two women, two little old ladies used to attend his sermons. They'd sit on the front row and he could see as he writes by their expression during his Bible study, that they were praying. Well, this kind of, after a few weeks, perked Moody's attention. He cornered them after the service. He asked them, what are you doing? 
And the reply is interesting. They said, well, we've been praying for you. He says, well, why don't you pray for the people? And they replied, because you need the power of the Spirit. Moody writes, I need the power? Why? He would recall. I thought I had the power. I had the largest congregation in Chicago. There were many conversions. I was in a sense satisfied, he writes. But right along, those two godly women kept praying for me. And their earnest talk about anointing for special service set me to thinking. One day, Moody writes, I asked them to come and talk with me. And they poured out their hearts in prayer that I might receive a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. A fresh filling. He writes of the night that changed his life when he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. He says, my heart was not in the work of begging. I could not appeal. I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. Moody writes, I can only say that God, that God revealed himself to me. And I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all of the world, he says. It would be as the small dust of the balance. America needs revival. We need a moving of God's spirit. It's the only remedy to what we face. But the only way that we'll see revival is for you to see revival. And the only way that's possible is through the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let's get to Acts chapter 1. Let's begin with verse 4. We're in a time period that exists between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. We're told, verse 4, and being assembled together with them, about 120 people, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, it is not for you to know times and seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This 40 days existing between Jesus' ascension, his resurrection. He spent his time providing his followers a set of vital instructions. Final words. He's been teaching them, which ultimately culminated in this final exhortation to this group of men and women not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. You know, what's interesting about that exhortation is that it follows Jesus' famous Great Commission. If you recall Jesus' commission, he told them, go into the world, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. Take the gospel with you. Make disciples of the nations, right? 
So he gives this great commission for Christians to go into the world. And then he's like, throws on the brakes. And he says, wait, before you do that, just go to Jerusalem and chill out. Wait, for what? For the promise of the Father. Within our text, Jesus gives for us three important lessons concerning the Holy Spirit. Jesus first introduces the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. He says, wait for the promise, only to then get more specific. He says the Holy Spirit, if you look at the text. In the Greek, this word promise, it's a noun, meaning the fulfillment of a promise that had been given. So it's only logical to ask what had in times past the Father promised the people. Scripture tells us that the promise of the Father was that the Holy Spirit would one day, the Spirit of God, indwell the hearts of men. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the Lord said, I will give you a new heart. A new heart. That's what we need, right? And I will put a new spirit, the new source of desire within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments to do them. Then you shall dwell in the land. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Jesus reiterated this promise in Luke chapter 11. Jesus He says to his disciples, I say to you, ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, it will be opened. It's a famous passage. But Jesus continues, for everyone who who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will you give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and now Jesus will classify this gift of the Father, he says, how much more will your heavenly Father give, what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask. This promise of the Spirit was first found in the Old Testament prophets, reiterated by Jesus. To this same point, in John 16, verse 7, Jesus made a rather incredible, in some ways, unbelievable comment about this promise. He said, quote, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, speaking of his ascension to heaven. For if I do not go away, the helper cannot come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, we have to ask, what possible advantage could we find as Christians in the presence of the Holy Spirit that we wouldn't have in the bodily person of Jesus. I mean, both of them are equal members of the Godhead, both sovereign, equally holy, powerful. How is it that the presence of the Holy Spirit is to our better advantage than having Jesus bodily in our midst? Which would be cool, right? Like Jesus is saying, you're going to think, following me, if I were here, I never left. I just stayed on earth, set up shop, pastored one church, because every other preacher at that point is terrible. If it's just Jesus. If Jesus stayed here, there would be major limitations. Jesus is saying, I got to go away, man. You want me to stay, but I can't. I got to go. Why? Because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit which is way better for you than if I were here. That's an incredible statement. 
It demands our contemplation. You see, unlike Jesus, the reason this is to our advantage is that the Holy Spirit lacks a physical form and is therefore omnipresent. He has the ability to indwell every believer. The power of Jesus would be in one place on earth, but the spirit can reside in each of our hearts at once. You know, the gospel records, the gospel records are clear that when Jesus came to earth to don human flesh, he did so by willingly laying aside some of his divine attributes. While on earth, for example, Jesus couldn't be in all places at all times. Jesus willingly limited himself through his physical dwelling, his earthly body. It also seems that the glorified Jesus is still in somewhat of a limited state. We're told that Jesus ascended from earth to heaven to do what? Not to be everywhere at once, but to sit in an actual location at the right hand of the Father. And he did so for a good reason. Because the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus sitting at the right hand, the seat of authority, is our advocate. He's our high priest. He's our mediator, always making intercession for you and I. Additionally, at some near future date, we're told that Jesus will return to earth from heaven to establish a future kingdom. Not exactly, right, the activities of someone that's omnipresent. Now, don't get me wrong. Is Jesus in our midst this morning? We talk about that, right? That we come together, Jesus is in our midst. But wait a second, if he's, if he's, can't be omnipresent, then how is he in our midst, but also at other churches? Well, he's not at other churches. He's only with us. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That was a heretical statement. That was a joke. It was a joke. I'm just kidding. But the reason, the reason we can say that when we gather together, Jesus is in our midst because he is, but understand, he's in our midst, not because he's come to us, but because what did we do? right from the beginning of our service, we took time to go before him. All the saints at every church across the world on Sunday mornings gathered collectively in spirit before the throne of Jesus to worship him and then hear him speak. Hebrews 4.16, we're invited. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace and help in our time of need. Understand this. And this is to the advantage of us. If Jesus remained on earth, the limitations of his ability to help us in our time of need would be obvious. Instead, Jesus knew that his job would be more effective in the halls of heaven, and thus it would be to our advantage to have a helper that would fill us, able to aid us by giving us an internal power to live the life that God has called us to and to fulfill the mission God has given each of us. So Jesus first, he introduces the person of the spirit. It's to your advantage. It's a good thing. Wait, this promise from times past, it's coming. But you also note that Jesus does something else. In addition to introducing the person of the Holy Spirit, he defines for us the role of the Holy Spirit, how this is to such an advantage. It's interesting that Jesus instructs them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to do what? He says to come upon you. Now, in order to understand what Jesus means with such a phrase, you need to first understand that scripture describes 
three different interactions we have with the Holy Spirit using three different Greek prepositions. We're not going to take a lot of time on this, but we're going to run through them succinctly. In John chapter 14, verse 17, Jesus said this. He said, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you. In the Greek, this preposition, with, it, it's, it's the word para, P-A-R-A. It means to come alongside of. The word describes for us the work of the Holy Spirit. This first work of the Holy Spirit in the world. Convicting people of sin. Drawing them to Jesus and his work on the cross. Every single person who's ever lived and ever will live experiences this first role of the Holy Spirit, this first interaction. Anytime you have that moment where you're going to do something you know you shouldn't do, and there's this internal voice, this something in your spirit that don't do that. That's not right. Or you do it anyway, and then there's that voice, I told you so. You feel terrible, right? See, that's the Holy Spirit with us, around us, Convicting of sin for the purposes of not condemnation, but leading us to salvation, the work of Jesus on the cross. But there's a second role. In the same John 14, 17 passage, Jesus continues. He says, the spirit will dwell with you, para, but then he says, he will be in you. In the Greek, this preposition, in, or en, it means to come within. So we have the Holy Spirit with us, but then the second preposition describes the Spirit coming in us. This is the work of the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer at the point of conversion. This is when that, that heart of stone is removed, where I'm filled with the Spirit of God, where I'm regenerated, where old things have passed away, all things have become new. I am now in Christ. And now it's my job to walk in the Spirit the spirit I've been filled with. I'm in Jesus. Now note, when Jesus said this to his disciples, I don't know if you noticed it, but he used the future tense, right? He said that the spirit, right? He's with you, present, but he will be in you. In the moment, he's describing a yet future work for those disciples. And yet, now that Jesus is speaking in Acts 1, uh, He's not referencing the second work of the Spirit, something that's already occurred. Note no, in John chapter 20, verse 22, after the resurrection, we're told that Jesus comes to the disciples and we're told he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So in John 20, verse 22, this second role of the Holy Spirit in these people's lives had been fulfilled. The Spirit had been with them and John 20, the Spirit is now in them. They're saved. They're regenerated. So what now Jesus is referring to, what he's exhorting them to go to Jerusalem to wait for, is a third role, third interaction with the Holy Spirit. Something beyond just salvation. In Acts 1, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. It's an entirely different Greek word that we find here. In the Greek, this preposition is epi, E-P-I, upon. It means to come over. You see, it's, it's, it's the work of the Holy Spirit uniquely filling a believer to the point 
of overflowing and flowing from a person's life. Now note, for the followers of Jesus, the three interactions of the Spirit, the first two interactions of the Spirit cease when the second takes place. So the Spirit's with them. When the Spirit comes in, no need for the Spirit with. And yet this third Well, it appears it's not limited to one time, and this is important. We'll unpack what it means, but just understand what the scriptures describe as the fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. It seems to be a continuous uh, interaction process of Christians to the Holy Spirit with that happens in that happens singular moments that they take place. But this third upon it happens multiple times in chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and acts four. We're told that Peter, who had been with them in Acts 2, was then filled with the Spirit, and he said, he spoke the sermon. In Acts 4, 31, we're told that when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word with boldness. So understand here, we have something interesting taking place. Jesus introduces the person to the Spirit. It's to our advantage that we have the Spirit. The Spirit's with us leading us to the cross. We come to the cross, the Spirit's in us. That's a great thing. We're changed, transformed. But then here, Jesus is like, go and wait because there's something else you need in regards to the Spirit. It's a filling that then the scriptures tell us with this group keeps happening. And by implication should keep happening with you and I. The third thing we should point out from the text is that in addition to to the person and and then the unique role, the purpose of the Spirit, Jesus describes the benefits of then this unique filling. It seems from our text that Jesus says two things would immediately result from the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Look at the text again. The two things Jesus said would take place. One, he says they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that in a moment. But we also note that what else? We're told that they would receive power to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. As it pertains to what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Jesus sets up a comparison here. He says, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This, the Holy Spirit coming upon us. Now note, Jesus said, you shall be baptized with an important word, with the Holy Spirit. Not baptized in, or that it's a baptism of. Jesus is saying the Spirit coming upon the believer has a similar effect to what occurred in John's water baptism. In Mark chapter 1, we're told that John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of the repentance of sins. He preached, I indeed baptize you with water, but John said, but he, speaking of Jesus, will do what? Will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Understand, John's water baptism was all about demonstrating an outward repentance for sin, whereas being baptized with the Holy Spirit was all about experiencing an inward purification from sins. Baptism with water symbolically cleanse the outer, outer man. But baptism with the Holy Spirit served to, to do something practical in the heart of man, a practical cleansing in the inward person. Describing the result of the Holy Spirit coming upon a believer. Using this phrase, baptism, it wasn't an accident. 
Jesus uses this word baptism because he's wanting to help clarify what this upon ministry of the Holy Spirit would really look like, what it would take place. It's not an accident. Beyond this, I don't think it was an accident that Jesus waited 40 days from his, his resurrection to communicate this important lesson. The word, the number 40 in scripture, it represented a new spiritual beginning. One rabbi even said the number 40 had the power to lift up a spiritual state. According to Hebrew tradition, if a person was considered ceremonially unclean, they were commanded to immerse themselves in a pool of water known as a mikvah before they could enter the temple and worship God or make sacrifice. The act of immersing in water signified cleansing and purity. Priests, according to scripture, were required to bathe before they could perform any of their, their religious duties. Men were required to bathe before they went and offered sacrifices to atone for sin. Women had to bathe following childbirth, this act of purity and cleansing. Gentiles, if you wanted to convert to Judaism, you would have to come and be baptized. They called this act, this traditional proceeding, a baptism. It was a common word. So Jesus saying, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It caught everyone's attention. Baptism. The Talmud stated a mikvah was the consummate Jewish symbol of spiritual renewal. Interestingly enough, it could be filled with no more than 40 sheahs of water. You find 40 all over it, spiritual renewal. The tradition of this goes all the way back to Noah. It rained for 40 days, right? The earth was submerged. The world was baptized. For what purpose? For cleansing of the vileness that had destroyed mankind. Furthermore, how a mikvah was built was also significant. And the Jews in this day, from this word baptism, they'd understand it. Because the rabbis believed impurities, spiritual impurities, required living water, such as a spring, to purify. The mikvahs that were in the temple, they would be built with a design that contained intricate plumbing systems that allowed them to be in constant contact with moving water. They weren't still pools. They were constantly being replenished and renewed with fresh water. How interesting that Jesus says, I am living water to quench the soul. So there's a lot of imagery here. When Jesus spoke of baptism, they understood that this coming upon, this baptism of the spirit would, would be a spiritual renewal. It would contain a purification. It would have cleansing. Now, before we continue, I, I want to take this one step a little deeper. As we know, upon regeneration, when you come to Christ, you are positionally righteous before God. You've been justified by the blood of, blood of Christ. And yet, practically speaking, because this sinful flesh remains until I'm ultimately resurrected into glory following death, as we can all sympathize, there's a struggle, right? There's a struggle between this new position I've been granted and this sinful flesh. 
The struggle of the flesh's desire, sinful desire, remain. Even after I'm initially filled with the Spirit. The Spirit comes in, but I still got this flesh I'm dealing with, this flesh of sin. Understand, when we talk about this epi work of the Spirit coming upon us for the purposes of renewal and purification, it doesn't pertain to your position in Christ. You're no better fit for the halls of heaven right now than you'll ever be. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not about God loving us more, God loving, or, or, or some position. It's speaking of something different. Instead, it's the practicalities of this struggle with the flesh. Because I continue to struggle, even after the Spirit's in me with sin. It's necessary that I'm continually renewed and filled and re-empowered, baptized with the Spirit. It's like this. There are times I crack. You crack? We crack. And then I need to be mended. And as such, filled again. Inwardly, this renewed filling, the Spirit coming upon me, it reminds me, that I'm a new creation in Christ. It reiterates that all things have passed away, that the man of sin is no longer me, that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. In a sense, this spirit coming upon us reminds me, draws me, covers me more with his grace. Now, while the first result of the Holy Spirit coming upon the believer is this incredible renewal through the baptism, the second result is that Note, they would receive power to be witnesses to me. This word in the Greek, power. Dunamis. We get our word dynamite. Power. Something, something strong. And for what reason are we told that we will receive power from the Spirit coming upon us? Well, Jesus says, right? Look at it. To be witnesses to me. You'll receive power to be witnesses to me. Let's, let's unpack that for a moment. In the Greek, this word witness, it's literally martyrs. It's the word we get our word martyr from. The word describes a person who dies for another or, or loses his life for a cause. In context, a witness to be witnesses. It's a person who has made a decision to lay down his life not for Jesus, but notice, to Jesus. You'll have power from the Holy Spirit coming upon you to be a witness, a martyr, to lay down your life, not for, but to me. That's what Jesus is saying here. Notice, he also says, to be, another key word, to be a martyr, a witness. Keep in, keep in mind, there's a big difference between being and doing. He didn't say, I'll give you power to do witnessing, to go out there and do it. No, 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 no. He says, I'm going to give you power to be it. And from being it, it will manifest into what you do. Jesus is focused on what here? Not the actions of the hand or the mouth or the feet, but the heart, who I am, my internal constitution, to be a witness, to lay down my life. The word here, it describes who you are, not what you are doing. Keep in mind that dying, dying doesn't make you a martyr. Dying 
confirms that you are always a martyr. Like martyrdom or being a witness to Jesus, it's not something that you do. Rather, it's something that you surrender to, but not in your own power. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, when the Holy Spirit has come, you shall be witnesses. Understand that this wasn't a command given by Jesus. It was a statement of fact, wasn't it? These words, shall be, are in the indicative, not imperative. Jesus wasn't recommending that when the Holy Spirit's power came upon them, that they be something, that they become now a witness. He said that they would be witnesses when the Holy Spirit came upon them, that it would be a natural result of the Spirit's indwelling. Please realize this second result of the Holy Spirit coming upon the believer, in addition to the baptism for cleansing, for purification, for renewal, is that when the Spirit comes upon us, the believer, you and I, receive power to do what? To enable us to die to the sinful self and live for Jesus again. When we fail, it's so important we're filled again. Jesus, he established the same example in his ministry. In Mark chapter 1, verse 10, we're told that when he was baptized by John, immediately coming up from the water, Jesus saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending, note, upon him like a dove. The same word. Jesus needed the Spirit to come upon him. If he needed the Spirit, how much more do we? So just a quick recap. Jesus introduces the Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. He then defines the role of the Holy Spirit coming upon a believer. Different from the Spirit being with us, different than the Spirit being in us. Something unique. Then Jesus describes the benefits of this unique filling. Baptism for renewal. So often we need that. But also the power to then die to self so we can live for Christ. This is what Jesus is describing. Now what's amazing about this passage is that Jesus commanded his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem because, and this is what's radical to me, Jesus knew these men and women really could do nothing effective at all for the kingdom of God until they had been filled with the Holy Spirit, that they had been cleansed and empowered. Consider the implication of this reality. Here we have a group of people who had spent three years with Jesus, walking with Jesus, communing with Jesus. They've seen all of the miracles we read about. They've listened to all of the messages we read. They've witnessed both his death by crucifixion. They've also witnessed the power of his resurrection. Additionally, this group of people, they've been redeemed from sin by Christ's work on the cross, something that they've accepted. They've been regenerated by the indwelling spirit, born again by grace through faith. And yet Jesus is clear to this group of people that an essential vital element of their Christian life was still missing. 
He gives him a great commission. He's like, before you go anywhere, you're not ready. Go to Jerusalem, camp out, and wait, because there's one more thing you need. You know my word. You see my miracles. You've experienced my grace. You've experienced faith. You've experienced regeneration. You've experienced all of it, but you're not quite ready. Go and wait for what? This promise that the Spirit would come upon. Understand, though rebirth is a critical first step to life in Christ, it is by no means the mechanism by which we can attain all that God has. Salvation, as a most glorious work, indeed provides me newness, but I must have the Holy Spirit infuse me with power from on high if I am to live the new life that I have been called to. So many Christians, they're saved for the life that God has ordained them for. They're excited about it. They run out, they're ready, and boom, they fall flat on their face. Why? Because they're going to do it in their own strength, their own ability, without power. Without power. Think of it this way. Salvation. Salvation might open my eyes to a whole new world around me, but without complete reliance upon the Holy Spirit's influence, I'm powerless to experience that new world. Christian, the life Jesus died for you, for you to live, it requires more than just being saved from sin. It necessitates you being filled, refilled, and filled again with the power of the Holy Spirit. If you've had a miserable week, aside from the things on the news that have depressed us, that have worried us, that we have carried burdens, aside from all of that, if your week has just been miserable because you've just failed, I mean, you have failed. You want to be Jesus to those little snotty-nosed brats that you call your own, share your last name, but man, they just weigh on you. And in a moment, you blew it. You lashed out. You lost it with your kids. Maybe this week you said hurtful things to your spouse. You didn't want to, but man, he just irritated you or she. Maybe you, you stumbled, you fell flat. And this morning you come to church and your heart is filled with guilt. You've been weighed down with condemnation. Well, do you know what you need this morning? I'll tell you, you need a fresh filling and the fresh life that follows. You need the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Spirit is in you. But you need the Spirit to come upon you. You need to experience and immerse yourself in His love and His grace all again. And you know when you come next Sunday and you blew it again? Guess what can happen? You can experience the same filling, the same immersion of His grace and His love. And you don't have to wait till you come to church. You finally get them to bed, and you can go down and repent. 
And you can come back to the Lord and say, I need your filling again. I can't do this on my own. I need your power. Friend, if you are tired in the race that has been set before you, if you feel as though this morning you're at the end of your rope, you drug yourself to church, but you're unenthused, your spiritual life feels stale, and you don't even know what to do about it. Just something isn't clicking. You're tapped out. You're empty. You're waving the white flag. Maybe you're trying to turn a corner. You deeply long to live a righteous life consistent with your righteous position, but it seems like you're running on nothing but fumes. I've been there. Oh, I've been there. Often. But you know what you need this morning? Fresh power from a fresh filling. You need the Holy Spirit to come upon you and provide you the power that you desperately need to live the life that he's called you to and the ministry he set before you. That boss at work, that neighbor with the dogs, you're gonna lose your mind. I can't do it. I can't be salt. I can't be light. How am I to do this? You can't. You're not designed to. You need power from on high. The Spirit's power. You need a fresh filling. Understand this morning that you can do nothing for the kingdom of God and you can make no impact in the world around you apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. The remedy for our nation is revival, yes, but more specifically, it's revival in you by being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what will change the world. You filled with the Spirit. It's the fuel that drives your walk with Jesus. It's by the Spirit. It's the only way you can live a godly life that you can engage in a work that lasts. Friend, there's no easy way to say it. You're useless without the Spirit's continual filling. That baptism of His grace and that infusing of His power, it's to your advantage that we have the Spirit. Well, it leaves us with a closing question. Okay, Zach, you got me convinced. I need it. What do I have to lose? God wants to give me more? Okay. But how do I get it? Like, how can I have more of that this morning? I need it so desperately. Well, we point back to Luke 11 because Jesus said, and he placed this right in the context of the Holy Spirit. He says, how much more Ask, you'll receive, seek not. He says, how much more will you, Heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Then, in this passage, Jesus says, receive. In our passage, power. He says, receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The key to a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit is very simple. Ask and receive. By faith. Understand, a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit is a matter of a believer asking and receiving by faith, believing that God will give. 
the promise of the Father. It's a gift we ask for, and then we receive with open hands. It's not something, friend, that you can earn, deserve, or conjure up. There's no formula. There's no mechanism. It's just the children of God before the throne of God asking God to fill us anew. And then believing it happens. And then walking with fresh filling. If you expect to ask and there to be some weird type of experience, it could happen. There's examples of it. But if you're expecting in that moment like cold waterfall pouring down your neck, it's more than likely someone pouring a cup of cold water on your neck. <laughs> Which you want to check out the person behind you and make sure that. But God wants to give it by faith. Father, fill me. And then let him. And ask him. D.L. Moody spent 16 years in ministry. Successful years. And then he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And it changed everything. Christian, you need to be filled with the Spirit. If we're to make any difference in this world, if we're to walk in victory, we need His Spirit. And so, Father...